Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. So you've had quite a long time to reflect on your NICU journey. Um, have your thoughts changed over the last 17 years? Or I guess a better question probably is how have your cha- your thoughts about your NICU experience changed over 17 years? Because I imagine that as your boys grow and some worries are put to ease and other worries come to fruition and you're navigating everything, um, that your thoughts have to change. So how how has the last 17 years uh, given you time to reflect on that stay? Um, I would say that the my first aha moment was realizing that we don't know a lot of things. That is very true. <laughs> yeah. We just don't. And, and and I pluralize this when I say we and I mean care teams. And again, whenever I say we, I mean providers and families together. Absolutely. We just don't know. And so that uh, was key. Uh, there was a, a before and after. I realized that we don't know a lot of things and, and, and that we are in uncharted waters here. Um, And then working with NICU teams has given me a good appreciation on the uh, person side of providers. Um, I get it now. I get your burnout. Um, I get the difficult um, conversations with families. Um, I get it. I get it better. Um, Because I can see, I guess, I I, I can have a more macro view um, of the story now instead of my micro view of my micro premise. Yeah. So that that has been huge um, for me. And I think that that's and this is what inspires me to to work doing what I do um, because it's like, okay, so we are all in this together. We are all trying to figure it out. Um, so let's do it. It's really clear that your time in the NICU had a huge impact on your life and everything that happened kind of, you know, but there you have your before NICU life and then you have your after NICU life. And you've mentioned a couple times that, that, you know, you're now working with NICU families and you've transitioned that into a passion of yours and, and now a career. I just want to toss it over to you to tell parents about how long after your NICU stay did you start getting involved in things? What did that transition look like? How did you take this NICU experience and all of the ways that you learned to advocate and navigate for your boys? How did you turn that into something that you now do full time? That, that's a very easy uh, answer for me because, as I mentioned, after discharge, experience doesn't end. And so soon after coming home, I'm like, oh, I have to figure out how to do all this, right? And so I started looking for solutions and for answers. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. I, it's not that I'm alone in this graduate family life, right? So let's, let me see what I can do. 
And so every year for Thanksgiving, after the twins graduated, I would go back to the NICU and say, hey, do you have a family advisory council? And they said, no. And so I said, mm, but you should. And then I would go back the next year and the next year until uh, on my fourth try, they said, okay, let's do a family advisory council. And uh, together with some other families, um, a handful of other families and the staff, we opened the first um, parent advisory council. I became the first volunteer to be cleared to have access to the NICU. And that way I started mentoring and counseling and supporting families at the bedside uh, for four years. And then after four years and growing an incredibly robust uh, family advisory council, I wanted to formalize my position. And uh, unfortunately there was no budget or no space for me to stay with the NICU. So I did what I usually uh, call jumping the isolate from one side on the family shoes to the clinical side. And um, that is what I've been doing for 13 years. I've been collaborating with NICU teams in quality improvement uh, projects uh, in the NICU. And then I've also uh, expanded that now to uh, the perinatal uh, part of care. And um, I'm currently participating in three different research um, uh, projects uh, that have to do with disparities, um, with necrotizing enterocolitis, and with social determinants uh, and severe maternal morbidity aspects. So, oh, and clinical guidelines. <laughs> so, um, and I did all this because uh, when I was in the NICU, I saw that things that needed change uh, needed to come from up above. It was not enough to be at the bedside, and I'm sorry to say <laughs> it was not enough. I mean, it's it's a it's a big part of what needs to be done, having families supporting other families, as I said, with peer-to-peer -peer support. But unfortunately, if the clinical team doesn't buy the idea of patient and family-centeredness, if the administration of the hospital doesn't buy the idea, it will not permeate the culture of care in the NICU. And so realizing that, I wanted to get involved with the clinical aspect of care. And um, yeah, that's what I've been doing ever since. Do you work for the hospital? Do you work for a company? How, no. how did, how, like, so that's what you're doing, but how did you, mm -hmm. who employs you and how did you get in there? <laughs> so, no, Just because I, I, I know other parents are a... really going to want to know, like, hey, oh, how did course. she do this? Like, who do I call? What do I do? So, oh. like, how did you navigate Absolutely. that? And actually, I want to tell you my experience because I want other families to do what I'm doing because we need more people doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, yeah, I would say I'm a healthcare consultant. And so the first step was to have a very relevant uh, volunteer role with my NICU because that was my first chunk of experience um, gathering a lot of information about the dynamics within the NICU. There are a lot of politics. In NICU. It was about learning about all the roles, 
and the structure of the NICU and then, you know, the, the management of, of the NICU. It's, it's a very, the NICU is a very complex environment. So that was key for me to gather a lot of the, 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 the direct care aspect of, of, of NICU. And then once I did that and once I realized what I wanted to do, which was work on the clinical side, um, I was very fortunate to represent my NICU in the Vermont Oxford Network, which is um, a, a large collaboration of, of NICUs from around the world in quality improvement. So through that involvement, I learned about uh, quality improvement cycles. And of course, I had to learn on myself. <laughs> I, I got I had to get my hands into what PDSA cycles were all about. Um, so I invite everybody to to do it. It's, I personally think it's fascinating and it's something that you can apply in other aspects of your life and really help you um, in your professional life. Um, and then through that, you know, you get to meet uh, teams from different parts of the country and they are looking for families to have a place at the table in different research projects. And so they call upon families. Um, I encourage everybody to put their name out there if you're interested in doing this kind of work. Um, there are a number of um, websites uh, that you can visit. You just need to navigate the internet and see, go to every single uh, body, healthcare body that you're interested in and read about, um, you know, uh, initiatives, uh, projects um, that where they might need the voice of the family, um, and there are a lot of there are a lot of places to do that. Um, and if you like it, um, uh, you can also look at uh, research places where they need also the voice and expertise of families at the table. I would say that this is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's definitely not for every family. It can get data heavy sometimes. It can definitely be very numbers oriented. Um, but if there is anything, anything that I could share with uh, families after these 13 years is that I promise you that when you are at the table, whatever it is, whether it's clinical guidelines, research or quality improvement, that project will be molded in a very different way uh, than if you left it in the hands of clinicians. So I personally feel that every single paper, every single um, guideline out there that is formulated for families without families as co-authors or co-contributors to it is faulty. You can't have a, a table full of clinicians saying this is what the families need. No, just go to the families, ask the families what they need, what they feel they needed when they were in the NICU, and then bring their expertise and then formulate your project from it. Right. Uh, this, this, this is science, right? This is... It's not that I'm making this up. There is a huge uh, gap between what you think people need and what people need. So that's why I'm doing it. When you're doing it, you have 
to bear in mind that your voice matters, that your story matters. Um, the first time I was doing research, I started talking about my experience and I said, well, you know, I don't know how relevant my experience is. It, it was X amount of years ago. And they said, your experience is data. And that was, that was another aha moment. <laughs> like, oh, I guess so. So yeah, and then, you know, they, they extract all these data points from your experience, all these aspects of care and quality and safety aspects of your story that are very valid for our hospitals to um, to have in mind when they are designing when they are designing anything when they are designing uh, new NICUs, new clinical processes, new you know uh, quality measures, process measures uh, when they are trying to overcome barriers. Your story matters and your story is data. And so that has to be really an interesting place to be in your mind where from a NICU parent perspective, this is my life and this is my story. But now in your consulting role, this is the data that then allows somebody else to have a different story or improved story somehow. Exactly, exactly. So you are impacting the life of others. And while you're doing it, you have a better perspective of what happened to you, so you can elaborate your experience better. And so you can translate your own experience into improvement to your now experience. It allows you to have more impact, and it also allows you to gain more perspective, um, which ultimately can change how you how you view things about both your experience and NICUs in general. Do you have a list of websites that we could um, share with listeners in the show notes that they could check out if they're interested in working or, you know, starting to pursue getting more involved? Sure. My first suggestion would be the Institute for Patient and Family Center Care. That is uh, ipfcc.com. Uh, the second one would be PCORI, P-C-O-R-I, Patient Center Outcome Research Institute. Um, and then if you're interested in getting your voice into specific uh, forums, uh, Google um, different names. For example, I am involved with the Neck Society because my kids have neck. Um, and so we are working together with uh, PCORI, um, you know, uh, developing capacity for research with um, uh, providers and families together and actually um, next survivors. If you do a little more research, you can go to uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a long list of uh, entities, uh, national entities working with NICU families. Um, but you have, you have to look, you have to look around. Yeah. You got to dig a little bit. They are not, yeah, they are not readily available. We don't have, when I say we, I mean, NICU families in quality improvement and working on clinical, um, care that we don't have representation right now. Um, so yeah, you have to do a little, a little digging. 
you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, family-centered care and making sure parents have a voice at the table. There is this um, new, I don't even know that it's new, but there there's some new terminology out there about family-integrated care. And I've mentioned it on a couple mm-hmm. previous podcasts. I had experience with it when I was in Uganda uh, and was in a NICU there for about six weeks where there were a lot of babies and one nurse. And so the nurse was responsible for anything technical, putting in a feeding tube, putting in an IV. And the parents were responsible for for literally everything else. They're looking at some of these um, models in Canada as well, where literally the parents are given a role as a care provider during certain hours of the day. Family-centered care can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but the general idea is that Mm -hmm. families participate in conversations and have a voice in decision making. Whereas family integrated care is very specific Mm -hmm. to the NICU and you are literally the caregiver for your infant and you go to classes and you attend these things and you learn more about the NICU. It's almost like a I don't want to say a mini nursing course because that's not what it is, right? But, you know, you learn all the terminology, you learn all the techniques, you get to do all the cares with the idea that then you are more and more comfortable with your baby. Do those feel different to you or do you feel like with your role in kind of advocating for parents and doing this clinical research, would you like things to get a little bit more towards family integrated care? What, like, what are your thoughts on those two different models? So, yeah, you, you said three very important things. The first one is there is a huge variation in the interpretation and implementation of patient and family centered care in healthcare in the United States. So right there, we have an issue have a big issue. So FICARE started being the family center care of Canada. And because their healthcare system is very different from um, our American healthcare system, their implementation has been different. And also, Canada seems to be a couple of steps ahead of us. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yes. I love that model, by the way. Like, I I love it. I totally want to go that way. And I am also aware yeah. of what a lot of the barriers are in the United States. There, yeah, yeah. When it comes to advocacy, we we talk about five care and and um, uh, patient and family centered care uh, interchangeably. So uh, for us, it's not a distinct difference between the two. It's actually the same intention and the same application uh, in different countries and in different ways and perhaps in a more fruitful way in Canada. But as an, I think that we are uh, using patient and family-centered care as an umbrella term for all sorts of interventions. Um, I want to say that patient and family-centered care was born, pun intended, in the NICU. Yes, very much so. Uh, over thir- right, uh, over 30 years ago. So, And, and something else uh, that you mentioned about uh, your experience, and, and also you mentioned that in Canada they have certain periods of time where families are caregivers. I am from Argentina and through my healthcare consulting career, I had the opportunity to uh, go and speak in Singapore with one of the most advanced NICUs in the world. 
and in my home country in Argentina, uh, where there are many, many challenges. And one of the most fascinating things, aspects of care that I learned when I was in Argentina was that because they have limited resources and because they have limited staff, families have a very active uh, hands-on role in the care of their babies. So charting is left in the hands of families many times, especially in the night shift. So I I found that fascinating. So the uh, staff designed um, these, you know, these um, spreadsheets uh, for families. And so they they do everything. They do the feeding, temperature, uh, taking the temperature, diabetes changing, um, kangaroo care. And so they're in charge of charting everything. And it, I, I don't think it gets any more family-centered than that. And it was out of need. But I loved how um, creative they were at finding a true integration of, of, of families. And it works. It really works. They have great outcomes for these teeny-bitty babies with very limited resources. And it's one of my areas of main interest is how to optimize quality improvements and outcomes with limited resources. You know, you can always throw tons of money and have all these EHR and all these electronics and databases and learning health systems uh, with tons of clinicians and statisticians working at it. But that's the easy way, right? How do you do it in a shoestring? Well, and it goes back a little bit to your comment about the monitors, right? So look at the baby, right? Like, yeah, we can do all of this technical stuff, but ultimately focusing more on the baby and what the baby is showing us. And and parents can do that, right? Like you don't need the bells and whistles in the electronic health system to just focus on the baby. Exactly, exactly. And it is, and wonderful things happen when you do that. So here, for example, I've worked with a unit on QBay spinning for years and years as a quality improvement project. And they were successful at rolling it out. But a couple of years into it, everybody forgot about it and they went back to their old ways. And then when I talked to the team in Argentina, they were like, they were showing me how feeding was done by moms. And it was totally Q-based, but it was naturally Q-based, right? The moms were like, no, now he's hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> their percentage of babies at the breast, uh, even for the micropremies, was uh, a lot better. Um, this is three years ago uh, that I had the visit. Uh, was a lot better than our uh, measures here, uh, that our percentages here in the United States, for example. I think that goes into a lot of the things that make make it difficult in the United States because it's not just doing cue-based feeds, but it also means that parents need maternity leave and parents need the resource and the support to be able to stay with their baby. And when you have regionalized NICUs and no ability to transfer babies or to find somebody to pay to transfer babies back closer to their home, doing things like what is a very natural cue-based feeding becomes more difficult because you don't have the societal support 
to have yeah. the parents sure. in the NICU. I mean, so it's not just medicine that has to change. It's it's the societal support that has to change as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's uh, natural QV seating in Argentina is a good example of how when the families are the stakeholders, the main stakeholders of any process, it sticks. There is sustainability, you know, compared to other projects where clinicians are the ones that are responsible for sustaining a change over time. But, you know, they are the, the, in a way, they are the non-believers because they are not the family of the baby. Right. Um, so th- there is a different investment, I would say. The next question that I had for you really involved um, your passion in elevating the Latino voice in Miami um, and the Latino voice in NICUs in general. And so I just wanted to give you some time and space to kind of talk about everything that you're doing in that arena and why you think it's so important. As I mentioned before, my perspective about the NICU experience uh, was definitely different from everybody else because I have, because I am Latina, um, because I had this healthcare experience prior to the birth of the twins here. Um, and that was a wonderful um, birthing experience in Argentina, in my hometown. From that experience and from my many interactions with providers, there are a number of um, aspects of care that are different. I approach the experience differently and I perceived the experience different. And I expected things in a different way that they were served to me. And I also claimed um, uh, several aspects of care or uh, the dynamic with the team in a different way because of my Latina root, right? So from that experience, um, I, uh, you know, I, I felt it right away that um, I was going through something different compared to other American families, Native American, uh, in American families. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Working with families at the bedside during my year uh, volunteering, I could see that the Latino families were a little more detached from engaging with the teens in the NICU. And there was, you know, the number one barrier, of course, is language. Um, and there are many tools that can be employed to bridge that uh, distance between the families and the team and their own unique experience. Um, but you need to actively have these interventions in order to accommodate those, um, those families, especially in South Florida, where we have a big percentage of our NICU population being uh, Latino or Hispanic. And then when when I started working on the clinical side, um, and, and you know, uh, lately in the past uh, five, six years working in disparities 
racial and ethnic disparities in nuclear care, I honed in even more on on the numbers. I mean, I, I had access to numbers that show that there are definitely uh, disparities in care. And of course, right now we have a lot of work uh, going on um, trying to bring down all those barriers and addressing these disparities. Um, and while they are mostly focused on um, uh, people of color, which needs a lot of work, um, unfortunately, the U.S. is not doing well with people of color. It's a great disservice, especially in, in um, the maternal care aspect. Um, uh, so w when I when I looked at you know, the Latinos, there are two main things that came out. One is that, um, where are the Latinos? We are a quiet voice. And there are two distinct aspects to it. One is, yes, language. And the other one is immigration status. Um, I had the great opportunity to uh, look for Latino families and interview them for our uh, disparity work. So I conducted all those interviews in Spanish and then I translated it and then I shared it with my research team. And, um, and the other aspect was uh, the, the, biggest, the, the, the biggest finding I think was um, the concept of family for immigrants. Uh, all the families I interviewed um, consider families all those that contributed to the care of the NICU baby. Whether it was another immigrant family completely unrelated to this baby. Um, whether it was a neighbor, uh, a grandparent, um, a friend. Um, and it was particularly interesting because after I recognized how expanded of a concept of family Latinos have, um, I brought that to the table in other aspects, saying, hey, should we really call it parent advisory council? Um, or should we call it, um, the, you know, the parents of the infant when there are so many of these families that are built around support groups for the baby. Um, and they are really family. I mean, these um, families, these, these moms have to go back to work and they have to leave the baby in the care of somebody um, totally unrelated. Um, and so they rely, you know, the, the support network is, is um, a lot bigger, I, I feel for Latinos. Um, and then we have uh, perhaps another aspect of my work with Latinos is figuring out, you know, where are we all from? There are 20, over 27 countries uh, that Latinos can come from. And of course, with very distinct cultures. Um, so there's definitely a great variation within our team, I would say, within our Latino team. Um, so it, it, it will come um, a time uh, when 
this will become um, family-centered in the uh, in the most broad meaning of the word, um, more customizable care, I would say, uh, tailor-made care to, yeah. to, for these families. Um, but the great thing about this pandemic is that we are using a lot of electronics and a lot of technology. So these families have been able to um, connect with their babies and use uh, electronic translation services, and which is great. Um, but then in other NICUs, for example, especially here uh, or in other states like California, um, there should be a better pairing of staff um, to care for these Latino families because many times you have the allocation, the wrong allocation of staff. For example, you have a, a Spanish-speaking family with an English-speaking nurse when the Spanish-speaking nurse is on the other side of uh, the NICU caring for a speaking, uh, an English-speaking family, right? Right. So we have to do a better... A better service would be to pair them up with, um, you know, with, uh, with with staff and, you know, an overall better acculturation of the unit uh, to, to address the Latino uh, needs. Um, the CPQCC published uh, the 10 tips for better acculturation of NICUs, and I am happy to say I was one of the contributors to it. And it's a very useful tool for all NICUs to employ to address uh, disparities and actually to work on barriers. Very interesting work. And we are still continuing to work on it. Right. Well, I think it's one of the things that, you know, we need to address uh, on a nationwide level is how, how do you ensure that all people are receiving the best care at all times and it is clear that in the United States that doesn't always happen. And I'm not entirely sure why. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that. Um, and I'm really grateful that people are doing more research on it to try to break that down because every parent deserves the best care. The NICU is not a social cocoon. So bearing that in mind, uh, we need to devise better ways to embrace every single family that comes into the NICU. But I'm happy to say that after our last meeting with the Vermont Oxford Network, the great majority of teams designing their driver diagrams uh, within the framework of health equity is something that um, everybody now has more present in their minds when they are approaching this uh, quality improvement project and they're happy to, to, to hear that let's see we'll, we'll have to see you know five years down five ten years down the road um, to see if this is really sticking just like everything uh, but I think that at least it's very valuable that we started the conversation and we started the work with all families um, to 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 tackle this because yes as, as you said it it should be quite care um, for everybody. Um, we are not there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sad that we are in the United States and everybody looks up to um, our country and for reference. And we are not a good example of health equity, unfortunately, especially no. in NICU, um, with many measures are showing that there are great disparities, you know, neck 
is one of them. The last thing that I wanted to talk about bef- before we wrap up is um, we've mentioned a couple times the gap between the care in the NICU and once you get home and the bubble that we create in the NICU and how flying solo is is really quite difficult. I'm working with some local agencies as well to try to improve that gap in care. And I'm curious from a parent perspective and a and a patient or parent advocate perspective, what do you think are the biggest areas to improve when it comes to narrowing that gap? From my standpoint, discharge teaching begins on admission. So you start super early, getting referrals done early, getting navigators that help parents navigate all of these appointments after they go home. That certainly is helpful. Um, But I feel like those are my medical eyes looking at what can help. I did not have a baby in the NICU. So from a parent and parent advocacy standpoint, what do you think are the main things to go after to try to minimize that gap after the NICU? Um, I, I want to reference a great article, a great paper out there um, by Jeffrey Herbar and Erica Edwards from the Vermont Expo Network called our responsibility to follow through for NICU infants and their families. It is outstanding. And it refers to um, how to uh, graduate the care that we give in the NICU for uh, life after NICU. Um, Exactly this, addressing the gaps after discharge. And um, while that paper has a ton of information on what to do, to have a successful follow through, I would say from this uh, NICU family perspective that uh, life uh, after this discharge starts in the NICU. So in my ideal world, the NICU where I'm at would bring to me a list of all uh, specialists that uh, the team knows I'm going to to need to visit all the ologists. And um, in that list, I will have first, if possible, if this is within uh, a children's hospital, I will have um, all these professionals listed out and I can become in touch with them before discharge. And if it is an acute um, scenario like my gastroenterologist, I would invite that gastroenterologist to come and have a huddle, uh, one of our last huddles before graduation. That will be a number one. Uh, number two is equip the families, not just with that experience of meeting the provider one-on-one before discharge um, and giving them the information about all the providers in the network and in the community, but also provide them with the area of expertise within their specialty. And by that, I mean, these gastroenterologists, these, um, you know, 50% of our NICU population, because it's not an intestine of a child that has an issue that comes to the gastroenterologist is not the same issue as the issue of an intestine that went through a NICU experience. Yeah. And so 
by that is we would be close to creating a tailored hair bundle, right? Um, so to to me that was very important. I interviewed my pediatrician. I interviewed my gastroenterologist or the gastroenterologist for my twins. I mean, um, and the neurologist and the pulmonologist and the allergist. I I interviewed everybody, but that would have been great if I had that done beforehand instead of having to figure it out after discharge while I was managing twins and machines and medications. Getting the best outcomes for these micropremies takes a village. And so having uh, a list of resources of community resources and even national entities that can provide some sort of support depending on the need of the family would be great. Um, I can tell you, for example, uh, with my conversations with trachea families, families with babies with tracheotomy, going home, uh, that they went through the same, and then some, mm-hmm. <laughs> some other complications, right? And they had to figure out their own pathways. So uh, there is a great uh, team of families out there uh, that provides support and uh, information for trachea families. Because they figure out, well, let's have a presence within the community to be able to help these families. So like them, there are other uh, community uh, groups and volunteer groups and advocacy groups that can help um, these families. And then, of course, we can go forever into other aspects of the socioeconomical uh, setup of our society where you know, maternity leave for NICU families should definitely, in my opinion, should definitely look different. Imagine if I had to go back to work with twins at home. It would have been simply impossible. Right. And then you have the cost of prematurity. And we can talk forever about that, right? It's not just the cost uh, per se of medications and interventions and specialists and co-pays in insurance and limits of insurance and insurance coverage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in medications that are not covered. I don't even want to go there because it's another three-hour conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but unfortunately, it's an issue for everybody. It's not just Nikki families. It's a huge issue in our country. But um, other costs of um, losing your job, um, unpaid leave, um, and then mental health. The emotional toll of the NICU, the half percentage of divorce of NICU families. There are a number of costs associated uh, with all of this. And it's a life dedicated to advocacy, as we mentioned um, at the very beginning. So, yeah, we could do better with those three things. Yeah. What did I not ask you about that you would love to say as we're we're wrapping up our time here? I'd love to share one aspect of my experience that I wish I knew and I hope that new families don't go through it. Okay. And I've heard this from a couple of families and it really stuck to me. And it is, we were hired as volunteers. And by that, I mean, um, let's recognize that all NICU families want to give back to 
um, they are NICU. Um, the great majority of us are extremely thankful and grateful for all the great care provided to our kids. So families come back to the NICU with their best intentions to give their best and to volunteer their time. Volunteering is a huge commitment, especially when we're talking about NICU families, because we are leaving behind our NICU babies in order to work for free for the hospitals. And hospitals are always welcome to have volunteer families around. And it's understandable. Of course, we need volunteers in the NICU. However, my two cents to all families is that they go into their volunteering roles with a time limit and uh, with a set of rights and responsibilities um, that are reciprocal. So if I were uh, back in my shoes 14 years ago, I would have sat down with the team and said, okay, I'm going to volunteer my time. I want to know what, what are uh, the family needs that you have right now in the NICU? How much time do you think you need to devote to put together this family-centered project? And what are we, we, teams and families, going to do once that project is done? What is the future of my role within the NICU? Um, and I know that because I volunteered as much as 20 hours a week. Uh, and that's a full-time job. And I did it because my parent advisory council uh, got to a point where it was uh, very successful and very robust. So there were a number of agent, uh, engines and dynamics set forth that I couldn't stop, right? We had support uh, for the families at the bedside. We had donations. We had pizza nights for dads. Uh, we had um, the chatter that matters. There were conversations every month, um, uh, translation <laughs> uh, services. Um, we redid a number of the signage around the NICU. We did a, redid a lot of the brochures for information for the families, et cetera, et cetera. So once you get the ball rolling, it will keep rolling. But it is important to recognize your state within, um, within that, uh, within the, 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 the politics of the NICU. And because the work of volunteers is so valuable, for the NICU, and it translates into uh, money <laughs> value for the hospital, um, then I would suggest that everybody that is considering becoming a volunteer uh, sets a time limit and has a sit-down conversation with their hospital. I know that most of us go in um, with the best intentions and not really knowing how to do this, um, but just think about it as a job. Think about it, because it is, it is a job, right? If you want to do it well, as most of us uh, want to do it, um, you need to approach it uh, as, as a job. So you need to set your time limitations, and uh, most important, you need to know what is going to be your position within 
the the NICU team. That that would be my little pearl to everybody um, that is out there volunteering right now and that is considering volunteering. I love my time at the bedside, um, but I would have I I wish I would have approached it in a different way. Yeah. Um, we have many stories of many families that have to leave their volunteer position and it's like a second uh, bad experience right. <laughs> uh, for these families. Um, I would love to work to save the families uh, a bad experience in this aspect. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been just a really interesting and intriguing conversation and I learned a lot and I think the listeners are going to learn a lot as well. Well, thank you, Anna, for this invitation, and I love the opportunity. As I said, I'm inviting everybody to join all of us, NICU families, um, uh, doing this this kind of work. We need more families. We need your voices. Every NICU experience is unique. This podcast is from my mom, Dr. Anna Zimmerman. It is intended for your education. It is not individual medical advice. Join us next time. Thank you for listening. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.